This week on Myths and Legends, there are two stories from 1001 Nights, the famous Middle Eastern folklore collection. On the first, we'll see someone ruin their life with something that could happen to any one of us. On the second, we'll see that murder loves company. The creature this week is a snail snake from Japan who loves sake and the smell of burnt hair. This is Myths and Legends, episode 201, In the Wind. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folk... Wait, what's a podcast? The Sultan asked Scheherazade. The Sultan's wife slash storyteller rolled her eyes. What she was going to say was that some of the stories she told were incredibly popular stories that you might think you know with surprising origins, and others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Th did that intro change? I feel like that intro changed at some point, the Sultan asked. Shahrazade took out her notes. To catch them up, she was Shahrazade, the storyteller for 1001 Nights. You mean, you mean one night, right? Because my wife cheated on me, and so, to avoid having my heart broken again, I marry a woman each night, and then kill them the following morning so they can't hurt me. Yeah, Shahrazad said. But she had found a little trick. She told a story each night, not finishing it, and leaving him wanting more, so he wouldn't execute her. Y you what now? The Sultan said, looking up from his plate of dates. Nothing, nothing, Shahrazad said. Anyway, let's get started on tonight's stories. The first one is that of a merchant with a problem... I think we can all relate to. It was Abu Hassan's wedding day. Again, he had been married in his youth, but tragically, she had died long ago. So Abu poured himself into his work, and he was successful, very successful. In fact, he was the most successful merchant in town. His friends kept telling him to marry again, but he said he hadn't dated in so long that he wouldn't know what to do. Besides, he was just a middle-aged man with nearly limitless wealth. Who would be interested in that? As it turned out, so many young women would be. As Abu Hassan learned when his friend led him to a matchmaker, he went in skeptical. But after he met with the most beautiful young woman he had ever seen, he knew that he was in love. He started planning the wedding. It was in Abu's mansion. He invited his friends and his foes. He had rice of five different colors, sherbets, walnuts, pistachios, almonds, and a camel calf roasted whole. Yeah, it was a classy night. Over the course of the night, the bride wore seven different dresses, and as things were starting to wind down, she found him sitting at the table in the middle of all of his guests. She told him that she would be in his, in their bedroom. Don't be long. As she walked off to go get ready, Abu reclined at the table. Wow. He had been really blessed. All of his friends, the whole town here to celebrate their marriage, a wonderful feast, beautiful wife who he loved deeply. He couldn't be happier. He turned to his friends, his family, the governor, and told them to stay as long as they wanted. The servants would let them out. As for Abu, he 
he needed to go spend some time with his wife. He pushed back the chair and started to rise. Then he realized he was in trouble. He felt the rumble at first, deep inside. He thought it might just be that, just a rumble from the feast. And it was that. And so much more. It caught him as he was halfway between sitting and standing, and the muscles that would have gone to stopping it were engaged, helping him rise. He felt it, and he knew there was nothing he could do to stop it. Yes, Abu Hassan farted. It exploded out of him, and all around, the crowd of hundreds fell silent as the sound rippled off the walls, filling the room. The three or so seconds that it did last felt like an eternity to Abu, and at the end, Abu was still halfway between sitting and standing. His face beat red. One of his friends coughed and asked, uh, would someone pass the dates? The whole party quickly resumed their conversations, like the fart had never happened. But it did happen. Abu was sweating now, standing in the middle of his own party. He, he said he had to go. He, his wife, he took off, running from the room, running from his mansion, and finding his mare. He rode from the city itself, down to the coast, dozens of miles, to the port, all while weeping bitterly. By dawn, he was on a ship looking back at his own homeland, as it shrank on the horizon. He was never going back. After a fart like that, he could never go back home. He landed in Kolkata, India, the farthest from the Arabian Peninsula that a ship would take him. Maybe here he could outrun his shame. Even though he showed up nearly destitute, he found a community of his countrymen who were connected to the local king. In time, Abu Hassan showed his shrewdness and his ability to turn one piece of gold into ten, and he grew in wealth and status on the edge of the world. For many long years, he lived in India, but he was alone. He didn't dare to make friends, didn't dare fall in love, lest he embarrass himself again. And always, always memories of that night would haunt him, and he would cringe at all of his friends and family hearing him, hearing him fart. Still, time dulls even the worst memories, and soon his longing for his wife and his home was stronger than his memory of that terrible night. It had been nearly ten years since his wedding night, but Abu knew. If he ever wanted to be able to look himself in the mirror again, he had to go home. He, he had overreacted, he told himself. And this is me speaking. I don't know about you, but sometimes I think back to the embarrassing things I've done or said in the past and cringe. But the thing is, I'm probably the only one who remembers any of those things, and I'm just, like, torturing myself. Abu might have had that same thought. It had been a wedding 10 years ago. What were the odds that anyone remembered that night? He couldn't find a ship to his own city, so he landed in Al-Mukalla in modern-day Yemen. There, he made his way overland to his hometown of Kalkaban, over 500 miles inland. He braved hunger, thirst, and fatigue. He outran ghouls and lions and killed snakes. Finally, in rags, he arrived at the gates of his city. Seeing it there, though, those old memories came flooding back. 
of that night, of that, that fart. So he didn't go in. It helped that, in his state, he looked like a wanderer, a monk. People gave him alms, and he accepted them at the city gate, but he didn't go in. He paced around the outside of the city for seven days, fortifying himself to go and find his old life, go up to his old mansion, the one that still shined on a hill, and see his wife, the one he had left waiting in their marriage bed. He was being ridiculous, he told himself. No one remembered. Wars and drought and a million other cares had intervened in ten years to wipe the memory of his fart from that city. Tomorrow, tomorrow he would go in. Tomorrow he would pick up the pieces of the life that he had run away from. He slept on the street that night, among the others that couldn't live inside the city. And, huddled up under a blanket next to a hut, he heard a mother and daughter talking. He smiled. He wanted kids. Maybe there was still a chance for that. Inside the hut, the mother told her daughter to get ready for bed. But the girl wanted to know about the day she was born. Her friend was going to read her fortune for her the next day. Her mom rolled her eyes. Stop stalling. She knew what her birthday was. Go to bed. The girl really wanted to know, though, if her mom was sure that it was that day, not the next or the day before. Her mom took a deep breath. Yes, of course she was sure. Not only was it the day her daughter was born, but no one would ever forget that day. That was the day that Abu Hassan farted. Outside, the pair heard a scream, and then weeping. They went to the door of their hut to see some random beggar, some monk, running through the streets, crying. His fart, his fart had become a date. It would last forever. Ah! They shrugged and went to bed. Abu Hassan retraced the path back to the docks, boarded a ship, and lived in fart-imposed exile in India until the day he died. I don't know, the sultan said to Shahrazad. The farting thing... You said it was something I could relate to. That's never happened to me. Okay, um, I'm your wife of what, a, a year now? And I can be real because I'm literally fighting for my life every night. You fart constantly, Shahrazad said, turning the page on her notes. Yeah, but I'm not embarrassed about it. It's like, it's an honor to be in the presence of my farts. It's a gift, not something to be ashamed of. Shahrazad pursed her lips. Sure. Anyway, they still had time until she was set to be executed in the morning, so they were going to do another story. This one was the story of a man with a hunchback who came over for dinner and of the disasters that followed. But that will be right after this. Taylor heard the music from outside his shop. He gasped. Yes! He dropped the needle and thread and rushed out, shoving open the door. A hunchback! Yes! The man outside said, Yeah, he was a person with a hunchback. What's up? The tailor said that he was so honored that a hunchback would come to his shop and entertain with his funny little dances. Person with a hunchback, the man corrected, standing there swaying. He looked back. 
They were shouting. And what, you think I just dance around to debase myself for your amusement? But Taylor was confused. You, you don't do that? No. Not for free, at least, the man said. And went back to glancing around nervously. Oh, okay, well, how much money do private shows go for? The tailor asked. The performer cocked an eyebrow. <laughs> More than the tailor could afford. And then he looked at the tailor. Is what I would say if you weren't holding out so much money in your hands right now. Wow. He snatched the money and said they should go inside. They did go inside. And the jester started a show. And the tailor loved the likely extremely demeaning performance. And at the end of it, the tailor said that his wife needed to see this. The performer looked outside, seeing guards questioning people in the street. He said, uh, now? Would now work? Let's do now. They'll do another one, for free. But could they leave out the back? When the man with the hunchback arrived at the tailor's house, it was just about evening. The man was beaming. He took the performer's coat and asked if he was hungry. The man with the hunchback said he would never turn down a free meal. And soon, all three were sitting down at the table. So, the tailor's wife asked, how'd you get into the offensive dwarf performances business? Must be so exciting. Traveling, performing, having the most powerful people in the world view you as subhuman and laugh at you. The performer sat back. Uh, it's pretty much exactly how it sounds, but unfortunately, it's part of the story. Um, and if anyone asks if I was here, let's just, you know, keep this whole performance between us. The tailor grinned. Absolutely. And how's the fish, hunch, man with the hunchback? Are you okay? He wasn't. He was choking. Immediately, the tailor rose from the table. What would they do? What would they do? Uh, hit him hard? They hit him hard on the back. It didn't help. And soon, the performer lost consciousness, slamming his head on the table and dropping to the floor. He had turned blue. The tailor, his first aid training being lacking, slammed on the man's chest a half a dozen more times before giving up. Oh no, he was dead. All right, all right, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? The wife said, transfixed on the body of their visitor. Why don't we just go to the police? The tailor said, making for the door. His wife slammed the door in front of him. No, 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 bad idea. Maybe that made sense before the tailor pummeled the poor man. But now, it looks like murder. They had to get rid of the body. The tailor peeked out the window. Well, getting him out of the city was a non-starter. There were guards at the walls, and the tailor was not cut out for this. Then the woman snapped her fingers. They would take him to the doctor. The tailor cocked an eyebrow. The doctor? But he's already dead. The woman smiled. Exactly. Just down the street, there was a new doctor who had set up shop. He was a Jewish man. He was slowly building his patient list, but he wanted to have more. He was new in town and didn't know many people. So as such, he was the ideal person to pin the crime on. It was all the more perfect because of how his office was set up. He was still starting out, so he got a cheap basement office underneath his home. Uh, hi, I'm a new patient, the tailor yelled up through the door. I'm really sleepy and ill. Ugh, so sick. I think I'm just going to lie down out here in the street. Uh, please come quickly. I don't feel well. The tailor's wife gave him a thumbs up, and they ran away. The doctor was ecstatic for a new patient, for any patient, really, and yelled to his assistant to wake up. It was happening. 
he yelled to the tailor that he would be right there. But the tailor was already gone, having propped the performer with a hunchback up against the door to the office. The doctor was in such a hurry that he asked his assistant to bring the light. And as such, he was running around in the dark, rushing to come to his patient's aid as quickly as possible. He opened the door to his office and heard a tumble. He didn't know what it was until his assistant arrived. And he looked down the stairs. It was his patient, crumbled and bruised at the bottom, not moving. The doctor gasped. Oh no! He turned and grabbed his assistant, quickly shutting the door. So what's the big deal? We go to the police, tell them everything that happened, and we're good. We didn't do anything wrong, the assistant said. The doctor nodded as he paced in front of the body, the one that he had placed in his wife's bed. Yeah, yeah, that was a good idea. That's a horrible idea, his wife said when she returned to her room. The doctor turned to his wife. Why? It was true. They didn't do anything wrong. She said that no one would believe them. They had to get rid of the body before morning. Who knows who would come looking for him? Then, the woman smiled. She knew what to do. Hurry, get him up to the roof. The Jewish couple had a Muslim neighbor. The way the laws were structured in the country at that time, he could be responsible for the accidental death of another Muslim man and maybe not face death himself. Maybe. They looped the cords under the man with the hunchback's armpits and found their neighbor's chimney, lowering the body down. For weeks, he had been complained about the mice stealing his butter. They could hear him through the walls. They looked down the chimney and saw the performer standing up, propped up. They delicately retrieved their ropes and went back home. The doctor and his wife sat up until the early hours of the morning with cups against the wall, listening for when their neighbor came home. Then, sometime around three or four, he returned. He had been out at a family member's wedding and it had lasted late into the night. When he returned, he froze. Someone was here. Someone was here, and they were trying to be sneaky. He picked up a club he kept hidden by the front door, shifted a few steps toward the chimney, turned, and struck. The intruder went down, and the man kept striking him. Come into his house, steal all of his delicious butter. Breathing heavily, he relaxed his weapon and went for the lantern. When it came to life, he looked at the body. Oh, oh no. He took it too far. He murdered a man. He paced the room. The man was dead in his house. He had to figure something out. His solution is probably the least creative because he doesn't think about which doctors have the darkest stairs or lower someone down a chimney. He just dragged the body out into the deserted city streets and propped it up against a wall. The rich Christian merchant took another swig and looked outside. It was very nearly dawn. Almost time now. He overdid it last night, because at some point last night had become this morning. He had some friends over for a feast, and they had kept the party going. They had snuck out less than an hour ago, and the merchant should have gone with them. Now, uh, he had to wait till morning prayer if he wanted a bath. If he was caught in the street drunk, 
he could kiss his job at the palace goodbye. He saw people filtering out of their homes to go to the mosque. Almost time now. Then, he took one final swig, because why not, and stepped from his home. He moved quickly, stepping through the streets, not making eye contact with anyone, staggering around and thinking he was really selling this being sober thing. Then, someone accosted him. He came from nowhere and hit the merchant. The merchant didn't need to think about it. He pushed the man back and punched him in the face. The man, who looked like a man with a hunchback, dropped to the ground and, forgetting this whole thing about sneaking to the bath drunk, the merchant started kicking the thief on the ground while yelling out for the police. The policeman yelled for the merchant to step back, but the Christian pointed at the man on the ground. He tried to rob me. Well, you got your revenge, he said, and sniffed. Ugh, go on then. You, the policeman said to the man on the ground. Get up. The man didn't respond. Serves him right, the Christian man sneered. But the policeman grabbed the fallen man's hand, but the man on the ground didn't respond. The policeman looked up in shock at the merchant. This man was dead. The merchant, a Christian, had murdered a Muslim. The policeman yelled for help, and the merchant was arrested. The merchant came to grips with the sobering reality as he sobered up in the prison. He was one of the sultan's purveyors, so he had connections. But they fled him when it was revealed that he had gotten drunk and beaten a man to death in the street. Worse yet, the man he had killed, he learned, was one of the sultan's private jesters, one that had escaped last night. They tossed the merchant before a judge mid-morning, and the case was a simple one. The merchant, a Christian, had murdered a Muslim man. The law was clear. The murderer would be put to death. Because of the defendant's status, they went to the sultan to confirm, and he said that there was no pardon for a Christian who killed a Muslim. They should do their duty. So, the gallows were erected, and they sent criers to proclaim in every street that a Christian was to be hanged for murdering a Muslim in the street. It was mid-afternoon when the merchant was led from the prison, the crowd jeering and yelling at him. He said a short prayer himself as he climbed the gallows, and the executioner looped a cord around his neck. Then, the crowd fell silent. All but one, that is. Out in the crowd, a man was rushing toward the gallows. Stop, stop, he did it. He murdered the sultan's jester. The crowd heard his admission and parted to let him approach the gallows. And the executioner, he told the magistrate present the story of how he had found the jester in his home that night, stealing his butter. He beat him with a club, but when he discovered that he killed the man, he dragged the body into the street, where it must have fallen on the purveyor, who thought that he was being attacked. The man said he killed the jester. He should be on the gallows. It was bad enough for him to have the death of an intruder on his conscience, but he couldn't bear an innocent man being executed for his crime. The magistrate looked to the merchant, two seconds away from twisting in the wind, and the man shrugged. The merchant said he had no idea what was going on. The magistrate took a deep breath and ordered the Christian to be set free. The Muslim man would take his place on the gallows. The merchant took off as soon as he was free, not waiting around for someone to change his mind, or mention that he had been drunk in public this morning. As the replacement stood at the gallows, they looped the rope around his neck. The executioner looked at the magistrate. Should he, like, say anything or just do it? This was a different guy, right? Then, 
more shouting from the crowd. It was a doctor. It was the Jewish doctor from the night before, barely able to control his trembling. He asked them to let the man down. It was his fault, and his fault alone. He told the tale of how he had lowered the victim by his armpits down into the home of the man on the gallows so that he would attack him when he returned home from a wedding. The man with the hunchback was already dead. The doctor had accidentally knocked him down a darkened stairwell after he showed up for help. The doctor had killed him. The man on the gallows was innocent. The executioner looked at the magistrate, who asked him what he was waiting for. The man had just confessed to the crime. The executioner unlooped the rope around the second intended victim and asked, um, he wasn't an attorney, but this seemed like they weren't really beyond a reasonable doubt anymore. The magistrate laughed. This was the Middle Ages, bud. Reasonable doubt means if I reasonably doubt you're following my orders, you'll be up there too. That, that's not what that means, the executioner mumbled as he looped the cord around the doctor's neck. Sorry, he said to the doctor, who was barely holding it together. All right, let's get to it, the magistrate boomed, and the executioner nodded solemnly, and, oh, his shoes untied. One minute. As he tied his boots, he looked out on the crowd. He finished up, rose slowly, and by the time he had walked over to the lever, he looked out in the crowd again. Anyone? Nope. Going once, going twice. Stop! He heard a scream. He smiled. There it is. It was the tailor and his wife, standing in front of the crowd. They did it. They killed the man with the hunchback. This was all their fault. The executioner preemptively let the doctor go, while the magistrate listened to their story of the man with the hunchback, who had evidently been on the run in front of his store, in the private show. He heard of the dinner and the choking, and finally, the attempt to frame the doctor, who was new in town. It was all their fault. All my fault, the tailor said, tears in his eyes. He said he forced his wife to do it. She wanted to go to the police the moment the man died. The magistrate said that that was good. They only had one rope ready and this execution was already running over. Someone should write this down, though. This was a good story. The sultan would want to hear it. Maybe sprinkle some dialogue and some deeper characterizations. It was good stuff. All right, let's watch this guy swing. The executioner looped his rope around the tailor's neck, and since this was the only story that began with a fully conscious victim, he was content that justice was being done. He pulled the lever, and the tailor dropped. The executioner grimaced as, dangling on the line, the tailor fought it. Ugh. He was a professional. This was embarrassing. He hadn't tied the rope correctly, it hadn't been positioned the right way, and the tailor would have a long, terrifying, and painful death, strangling at the end of the rope. Wait, are you serious? The man heard the magistrate say. He turned around. A messenger was whispering in his ear. The whole thing? All right. The magistrate turned to the executioner. Cut him down. The executioner didn't wait to ask why, and rushed to the man slowly being strangled by the botched hanging. It was a tense several seconds as the executioner feverishly sawed through the cord with his sword, but soon the tailor dropped. His wife rushed to him, loosening the cord from his neck. He looked up. What was going on? The judge said that I guess the Sultan of China doesn't like how sloppy this is. 
He was getting updates about all the stories and says that we can't try to execute four different guys after only having a trial for one. Plus, he likes stories, so he wants you all to come and tell him this weird story. The three people said that this had been extremely terrifying and, oh, the sultan wasn't asking, got it. The magistrate told the guards to track down the Christian merchant and they would all meet at the palace. At the palace, the four men found the sultan reclining on some pillows next to the covered body of his favorite gesture, the dead hunchback. The sultan of China was ready for story time and told the four men to take it from the top. Who were they? What was their deal? So each of the four men told a wonderful, fascinating, interesting story, some in multiple parts, that just left the sultan enraptured in curiosity and delight. Then... The barber was there for some reason. Let's say that the sultan needed a shave, and the barber was smart enough to not interrupt the sultan's story time. He was bored, though. He hadn't come for story time. He had come to do a quick job that was turning into an all-day thing. Sometime around mid-afternoon, the barber lifted the corner of the sheet, covering the jester. At the conclusion of the tailor's life story, as the sultan was about to command him back to the gallows to pay for his crime, Everyone in attendance heard a cough. They turned to the table where the jester was laying to not find the rapidly decomposing body, but the jester sitting up, rubbing his throat, and the barber holding a bloody fishbone. Everyone was shocked, and the sultan asked how this could be. The barber said, just, you know, basic medical care. The fishbone was still in there, but being beaten by the tailor trying to get it out, tossed down the stairs, beaten with a club, and then punched in the head certainly didn't help. In fact, he should really get some medical attention. The sultan said that the barber would be honored. But first, he wanted to know the great healer's story. The barber said that they should really probably get this man to a hospital. Seriously, it's not normal to be unconscious for over 12 hours. As the jester was being dragged away by the guards for escaping, the sultan just laughed. He told the barber to relax. All of this, oh, I feel so bad, I'm falling over, I need to see a doctor. It, it was one of the jester's bits. Seriously, though, out with your story. The barber looked at the man with the hunchback, who, yeah, really needed to go to the hospital, swallowed hard, and told his story. Well, Shahrazad said, looking at the sun rising outside, time for me to die, right? Because all women are terrible and not just the one who cheated on you? Sultan pursed his lips. Yeah, but but what was the barber story? Shahrazad said that was a good question. It was awesome, by the way. But it's cool. It would die with her. Ah, okay, okay. One more night. Only because he really wanted to see how this ended. Shahrazad nodded with a smile. Deal. One more night. That's it for this week. Next week, we're back in the Grim Fairy Tales. With yet another reason why you shouldn't leave your children alone in the dark forest. And how, if your bread is in the oven, and screaming, you might actually be having a really good day. 
If you'd like to support the show, there's still a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of an umbrella hat, yes, a hat that's also an umbrella, but like one that's really big and won't drain properly, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of the show that aren't a three-foot-wide hat that will soak anyone you try to talk to. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is the Tsuchinoko from Japan, meaning child of hammer. The Tsuchinoko is a one to three foot long snake slug thing. I've read that due to their shape and size, sometimes they resemble beer bottles. Most pictures depict it as like a slug shaped snake. And unlike most of the creatures of the week, this thing has a bounty on its head, like a real life bounty. If you can take a photo or want to try to wrangle a three foot long muscly snake, you can net a total of 30 million yen, or $300,000. Be careful though, because it's not just a snake. It can talk, of course, it's a terrible liar by the way, and it's venomous. Like the fearsome critter from North America, the hoop snake, when the Tsuchinoko feels threatened, it will bite its own tail and roll after someone, attacking with its fangs. Oh, and I guess it can double jump, like in a video game. It can leap from the ground, and then, in the air, make another jump, flying after you. $300,000 is a lot of money though, so I wouldn't blame you if you wanted to attract this slug snake. They have very particular tastes and are attracted to the smells of miso, dried squid, and burning hair. Oh, and they love alcohol, so pour out a bottle of sake for them and just wait. They live in the woods or mountains, and if you can catch them sleeping, even better. They're very bad snorers, and they'll lead you right to them. So yeah, if you're hiking and you see something in the form of a beer bottle flying at you, either it's a super venomous slug snake leaping to bite you in the face, or someone throwing a beer bottle at you. Either way, you're not having a great day. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. And I want to say thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring us this week. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? You should really check out BetterHelp. They assess your needs to match you with your own professional, licensed therapist, and you can start communicating in under 48 hours. Visit BetterHelp.com myths. That's BetterHelp and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Myths and Legends listeners get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com myths. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll see you next time.